Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Turn on the TV, the radio, or even a podcast these days, and you're likely to hear about one of the defining issues in our country. Our main story tonight is income inequality. Over three decades, between 1977 and 2007, 60% of our national income went to the richest 1% of Americans. In fact, it's the top 0.1% who have been the big winners in wealth over the past 50 years. It's the economic promise at the heart of the American dream, a future where all families have the financial security to provide for their kids, live a life of stability and dignity, and invest in their future. But that dream is not becoming a reality for too many Americans. The fact is that as those at the very top of the economic spectrum have gotten wealthier, those near the bottom have gone from having no wealth to being in debt. Our researchers have been focusing on this topic as part of a project called Next 50. As Urban Institute celebrates its 50th anniversary, Next 50 looks at how high-quality research can help changemakers accelerate solutions to the nation's most pressing challenges in the decades ahead. And you can learn more at next50.urban.org. Caroline Ratcliffe and Caleb Quakenbush looked into policies that could better lead to financial security for all Americans, and they found a few proposals to be especially compelling. Proposals so bold, in fact, were dropping the air horn. So in this episode, we're going to take a look at a few of those air horn proposals, including universal basic income, guaranteed jobs, and revamping social insurance. But let's start with some context. Caroline will start us off talking about what family economic stability looks like in America today. So I think about financial security as having three elements. So first, being able to meet daily expenses so that people can pay their bills and pay them on time. Um, The second is being resilient to shocks. So you've got that financial cushion. So if something happens, your car breaks down or you have an unexpected medical bill that you can pay it and move forward without getting yourself into a cycle of debt. And then third, being able to pursue opportunity. So to be able to send your children to college or to purchase a home, save for a secure retirement. The reality is that type of financial security is a challenge for many Americans. A lot of families are struggling today. So a lot of times we talk about the number of families who are in poverty or the poverty rate. So here we've got nearly 40 million Americans live in poverty. That's about 12.5% of the U.S. population. But when we are talking about financial insecurity and instability, we're talking about multiples of that. So if we're looking at working families, so these are people who are in the labor force, about a third of these families report difficulty making ends meet. So they're having trouble paying for food, shelter, medical care. Right now, the economy is moving at a fast clip and unemployment has just about never been lower. But the problem is that when shocks do hit the economy, those at the bottom get hit the hardest. If we just look at the Great Recession, that's exactly what we see. There was certainly targeting of subprime loans to African-American communities, and so they were hit much harder by the housing crisis. 
The same happens with the stock market, that if you are lower income, more vulnerable, you have some savings in retirement, when the Great Recession hit and the stock market crashed, people, if they lost their job and they were vulnerable, they withdrew their money from the stock market. So they took their money out at the worst time because of need, but they withdrew that money. So they lose and they don't win on the upside as we've seen these huge increases in the stock market. In order to think about strengthening American families in the next 50 years, Caroline says we have to think holistically, that you have to wrap up supports together. And she talks about three ways to do that. There's lots of elements. And as we're thinking about financial security, that's being talked about out there. But first, it's establishing a stable income floor. So for families that have volatile incomes or they can't meet their needs, that what's that base floor that families need to have some sense of financial security. The second is to expand insurance to protect what families currently have. So protect their wages, protect their wealth. And then third is this broader uh, system where we're enabling all families to fully participate in the financial system. But here we're talking about expanding access to high quality financial products and services. It can start from the basic of providing low cost transaction and savings accounts so people can fully participate in the banking system. And you need a bank account in order to save. So then the next step could be facilitating savings and incentivizing savings so people have that nest egg when an emergency hits. So now you have the context. Financial insecurity is increasing in many ways for many people. And you have a sense of the goals that policymakers might pursue. So let's return to the bold proposals. First up, universal basic income, or UBI for short. So universal basic income, if we just say what the the absolute definition is, it would be providing a benefit to everybody. There's no conditions on that. And the basic part means that it would be enough to meet basic needs. It's an idea that has support from a broad array of political and business leaders. Here's presidential candidate Andrew Yang discussing his UBI proposal. A universal basic income is a policy where every citizen in a country gets a certain amount of money free and clear to do whatever they want. So my plan, the freedom dividend, would give every American adult $1,000 a month, $12,000 a year starting at age 18. This would create millions of jobs around the country and would allow families and individuals to help manage uh, this historic transition that we're in, in terms of technology transforming uh, the labor force. As you can tell, this is a bold idea. But it's one that's getting some real traction. One appeal is that it's pretty simple in theory, but the details are really going to matter big time. You know, how much money should be included in a UBI proposal? Just how universal should a universal basic income be? And more. And you can see how it gets complicated quickly because what you need in San Francisco or New York City is going to be different from what you need in a smaller, less expensive community. Whereas in New York City, it's going to be housing is so much more expensive, but maybe transportation isn't that costly. Whereas in a more rural community, housing might not be that expensive, but transportation. So how do you have something that's set and flat that makes 
meets basic needs, but in all these diverse communities across the country. Some proponents of UBI see it as a way to replace the existing safety net with one that's less patchwork, less reliant on government bureaucracy, and offers more flexibility for recipients because it's cash. But Caroline cautions that strategy might have unintended consequences and actually make some people worse off than they are under the current system. As we think about universal basic income, about how that is designed is critical and how that sits alongside our current safety net will be key. That if we just say we're going to have a universal basic income and it's going to replace our current safety net or key pieces of our safety net, some people could be made worse off, particularly, for example, people with high housing costs. So you have to be very careful about how you would design such a program so that you're ensuring that you're not providing stability for some families and you're taking away stability for many, many families. All right. On to our next Airhorn proposal, guaranteed jobs. A guaranteed jobs policy would guarantee a job to anyone who's willing to work and can meet some basic qualifications. The idea would be a 21st century version of the Public Works Administration implemented in the New Deal under FDR. So when you're thinking about government providing jobs, obviously you don't want to compete with the private sector. And I think the jobs that most policymakers sort of attached to when they're uh, designing these proposals tend to be around infrastructure. So you think about building out sort of roads and other like energy improvements. Uh, You think about the, the Green New Deal that's been put on the table recently, or you think about other needs, social needs that you see in the country. Um, One of those is around caretaking, both for children and, you know, around teaching, providing daycare and elder care as well as we have an aging population. As you can imagine, program design for something as broad as a guaranteed jobs policy is going to be tricky. The devil is in the details. You definitely have have to think about when people are coming with different skills or different backgrounds. One avenue is obviously to provide training through the employment program, but how you actually match people or maybe I don't need this particular kind of job in this area, but I need it in a, across the country. So can you convince somebody to actually <laughs> to relocate? Or, you know, is that part of your, your plan design as well? That's, that's one of those challenging design questions that, that haven't been answered yet. Caroline warns against going too big too quickly on a program like this. It would be best to develop with a clear testing and learning agenda in mind from the start. The proposals today aren't just that we should have This broad program, it's really, let's implement these pilots in these 15 sites or some number of places, and let's learn about what happens. That there are concerns that if you come in to a community and you have a guaranteed job at $15, what's going to happen to the other businesses in that community that if they're paying $12 or, I mean, minimum wage, but $12, $13, they would have to raise their wages. And what does that do to business? So there is so much that we need to know and learn both what happens, how these programs would work, but also the macroeconomic impacts on businesses. So beyond creating a stable income, how can we help people recover from financial shocks? This leads to Airhorn proposal number three. 
Caroline sees a need to modernize the social insurance system. It's reforming our social insurance programs to better protect families from earnings losses. So it's not just, it doesn't have to be you're employed or not employed, and we're not going to come in and provide services unless you've completely unemployed, but that there's just a more holistic look at the worker and what the worker need is. And this type of approach reflects the changing labor market that we live in, the gig economy, and the reality that workers are facing today. So the system, the unemployment insurance system was designed decades ago. So back in the 1950s, about 50% of the unemployed received unemployment insurance. Today, it's 27%. So 27% of unemployed workers receive unemployment insurance. So obviously, there is lots of people that it's not working for. So really looking at that program and designing it in a way that one, captures more people, um, and two, deals with the volatility that we see in people's lives. That if you have, you're employed consistently, but your hours, your employer is giving you 15 hours, then 25 hours, then 40 hours, then 10 hours, our system does nothing to help that family maintain or achieve stability. A more radical idea would be to provide some kind of insurance for the wealth people have accumulated to protect that wealth from catastrophic events like the Great Recession, the housing crisis, or natural disasters. Wealth insurance, that might sound a little bit outside the box, but we've had insurance to protect wages for decades. It's at least time that we start thinking about, should we be insuring wealth? One big question is what wealth would be eligible for wealth insurance? The main places where Americans hold their wealth is in home ownership and retirement savings. So that's in their homes and by and large in the stock market and their retirement. So that's one of the places we we would want to start and think about. Now, there's a lot that we would need to learn and know about what are viable products. What where would we want to start? What's the relationship between the private sector, state and federal government? Who's going to play a lead role? So there's lots of un- unanswered questions there. It might have seemed crazy 50 years ago to have unemployment insurance benefits, but they're in and now we just get used to it. (laughs) That at least starting to think about some of these protections for wealth and particularly since we know that more vulnerable tends to be more people of color that are getting hit from the result of these economic shocks that lead to reductions in wealth. So a product insurance like this could really help reduce these economic inequalities. The last idea we'll look at is increasing access to stable, affordable, and high-quality financial services in order to save and grow wealth. Too often, lower-income workers are forced to rely on check-cashing stores and payday lenders rather than traditional banking services. Those alternatives can charge high fees and generally leave fewer dollars in a worker's pocket. Here's Caleb. To expand access to high-quality financial services, and that starts with safe, low-cost accounts where people can deposit their, their money and start from there. And that's important because 
everything else sort of layers on top of that. So we want people to be able to save their money in a a safe place. That starts with having access to a bank account. And when you look at these new financial technology solutions that help people manage their food stamps or smooth their income, or even in some cases, uh, access credit, that all layers on top of the mainstream banking system. And providing safe, low-cost, and innovative ways to borrow money is also important. This could include exploring new ways to determine credit worthiness for loans rather than the traditional credit score. As first line of defense, you want people to have emergency savings. But outside of that, if savings aren't sufficient, if the emergency is big, if I haven't gotten my paycheck yet, you want people to be able to borrow safely and be able to repay it. And so having access to low-cost quality credit is another tool in our financial arsenal for addressing emergencies. And there's some new solutions that are using different methods of underwriting, of looking at people's finances to make sure that they are going to be able to pay the loan in the future. What cash flow underwriting does is instead it looks at your transactions in your bank account. So do you consistently have more income flowing in than you have expenses? Like what are your other obligations? What is your rent amount? And if it looks like you're a good candidate for credit, then you get access to it. Some of these financial technologies could help people manage their money and save for the future. But before you can take advantage of those services, you have to be able to log on. So going back, first of all, to making sure that you do have reliable access to the banking system that many of these services are layered on. Secondly is is reliable access to mobile internet. When we were talking to one nonprofit leader, they, they did raise the question of if you're paying, maybe you have like a capped data plan and you, you know, you've used your data for the month, do you then lose access to your banking benefits for the rest of the month? And some of that could be addressed through either a subsidy for mobile internet or you know, sort of subsidized uh, Wi-Fi in some areas. And some areas are providing that. So access to both digital products and other opportunities like universal basic income and guaranteed jobs represent bold proposals to address financial insecurity. And improving economic well-being is an issue that impacts all of us in this interconnected society. Caroline puts it nicely. We have vast amounts of financial insecurity in this country, and this is not just an income issue. That when we're talking about financial insecurity, It's not just a low-income issue. It's very much a middle-income issue and, to some extent, a high-income issue. And to the extent that we've got instability and insecurity in families, that that can ripple over into the broader macroeconomy. So we saw with the financial and housing crisis in the mid-2000s that when people lost their jobs and then couldn't pay their mortgages— that that had a devastating effect on the housing market. And we had massive declines in wealth overall. That this is an issue for individual families, but it's also an issue for the broader macroeconomy. And I think what we need to learn more about is how those two pieces fit together and can we protect the economy at the same time we protect families. As always, we'll close with three takeaways. Here's three things you need to know. One, the growing income and wealth divide in this country, coupled with a lack of financial security for many Americans, is one of the defining issues for our country over the next 50 years. Two, 
Having a stable income floor, insurance against financial shocks and disruptions, and access to savings, quality financial services, and the ability to build wealth are keys to achieving financial well-being. And three, there are a host of bold proposals aiming to help all Americans achieve financial well-being, ranging from universal basic income and guaranteed jobs to revamping the social insurance systems. As we test out these new approaches, we should do our best to build in opportunities to learn what works and what doesn't. So that's our show. Thanks again to Caroline Ratcliffe and Caleb Quakenbush for discussing their work on financial well-being with us. If you want to learn more about financial stability or Next 50, check out next50.urban.org. You can download the full report that Caroline and Caleb produced on financial well-being and also check out some of the really interesting questions that are animating our work over the next 50 years. If you're a new Critical Value listener, you can go back to our episodes on credit, savings, and financial well-being and the wealth gap to hear more about these topics. And if you have a few seconds, jump on iTunes and leave us a review at five stars, and you can always hit the subscribe button to make sure you get future episodes. Big thanks to our producer, Dave Connell, and the rest of the Rockstar team, Kate Villarreal and Katie Smith, and to our sound editor extraordinaire, Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.